Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Efan Okoku, who's broadcasting the Euros with ESPN. We've had some great guests lately, including Paco Villa, Shola Winley, and Bruce Arena. So check those out. Now, here's my interview with Efan Okoku. Our guest now is Efan Okoku. He's working as a game analyst during the Euros for ESPN, which he also did for World Cups 2010 and 2014. He had a 16-year club career as a forward, including in the English Premier League, and he was a member of Nigeria's 1994 World Cup team and Africa Cup of Nations winners. Efan, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Good to see you too, Grant. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're recording this on Friday, one of your few off days during the tournament. So thank you very much uh, for, for doing that and spending some time with me. Um, and that's kind of my first question. You've been extremely busy calling games during this tournament with your partner, Derek Ray. Yeah. How do you approach just trying to, to hold up for, for the entirety of the tournament? Uh, well, good question. Um, there's no real, there's no real firm plan I have in mind. Just plenty of rest before I arrive. <laughs> I sort of know the deal with ESPN. It's always quite a tough gig, intense, especially the first ten days of the tournament, whether it's the Euros or the World Cup. And just trying to, you know, just trying to keep a fresh mind, you know, before I arrive. Largely, I try to zone out as much as I can, as much as I can actually from from football for a few days, and you know, watch some other sport and. Um, engage myself with different stuff. So I come back a little bit refreshed before, you know, the first ball is kicked. Um, but then, you know, once we get into the rhythm, three, four days in, we played a few matches, then, you know, you sort of get back into that sink and of, uh, of matches every couple of days or sometimes, you know, two or three on consecutive days. And uh, it becomes, you know, quite sort of straightforward after that. Okay. Um, you're in Connecticut and in, in not yeah. on site at the Euros how many times before this, or, or has it been the case during the virus that you're calling games off a monitor, and, and how challenging is that? Call quite a few off the monitor. Um, I do that on a, on a regular basis anyway with a couple of the broadcasters that I work for. So not every game I call is actually live in the studio. Probably about there's been probably been more since we resumed after the first lockdown in June. Obviously, we were live at the stadium for all of those matches. The end of June. July, the last sort of eight, ten matches, I think, of the Premier League season. Then there was a bit of a break in August. Uh, but then since, uh, sorry, yeah, end of July, August, well, since we resumed for the new Premier League season, uh, it's probably been actually about 90% on site, you know, which is good, you know, a few more than ordinarily I would be engaged with. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the sort of matches um, from the booth are not something that I like, of course, because you can't replicate that, that, that atmosphere, no matter how fantastic the sound guys are with audio etc for us it's not quite the same so we have to make it um, a little bit more exciting if we can and a little bit artificial for us i don't think the viewers really know too often or can recognize um you know so i suppose that's a sign that we're doing quite a good job yeah i'm really enjoying your calls uh with derek and and derek is a guy that you worked with before uh for espn at world cups does does that help in any way to have some prior experience working with someone that you're broadcasting with? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, most of the matches I've called with Derek actually have been for ESPN. Last World Cup um, tw- uh, 2014 that I worked. Um, I'm not sure if we did anything in 2010 in South Africa, maybe one or two, but largely t- 2014. 
I don't actually think we've done too many in the UK when Derek was based over, you know, the other side of the pond. But I know Derek well enough. I know his style. He knows my style. So we don't really have much to discuss beforehand in terms of um, how how we dovetail. Just one or two things. I think, you know, they, they sort of feel, everything sort of, you know, sort of sinks into place within probably within about 45 minutes. Um, you know, so we're, you know, we're quite familiar with each other, despite the fact, you know, we've not worked together for, yeah, nigh on about five or six years now, um, which is nice. So that that certainly takes away the element of uncertainty with a new partner. Um, so I guess, you know, that's why, you know, ESPN have, have put us back together once again. And it's generally why, you know, they try and stick with the same pairings if they can. As long as everything, of course, is is working out fine from their from from their point of view. I, I'm really enjoying your broadcast together. I, I'm wondering, how do you personally approach analyzing a game? Like, how do you go about doing what you do, kind of from a big picture perspective? Primarily, I like to. Fo- I say like to focus. I think it just comes. It comes naturally. Really, I I I love the feel of the game. I tend not to overanalyze the stats, certainly before a match. And because I know pretty much, you know, the players that I'm talking about, especially when it comes to, you know, the Premier League games. Um, so I generally go with what I see on the field. And I always feel it, it is the job of the of the main announcer, of course, you know, to tell people back home what's going on. You know, obviously you can see the pictures with TV. I've done quite a lot of radio over the years. So you need to be a little bit more uh, descriptive with, the way, you know, what's happening on the field with radio. So it's largely it's largely their job to tell the viewers what's happening and, and my job largely to say why it's happening. So because of that, then I it's very reactive to what is going on in a way, but also try to paint a picture of what I think may happen, obviously, before the game. You, you know, you don't always get that right, of course. You know, where you think, you know, weaknesses and strengths lie with the opposition players, but, in you know, interpreting... Or what's going on? I mean, I could have a thousand stats, or you know, the commentator could have a thousand stats, and he reels out maybe five hundred eighty-five or seven hundred fifty of them. But I get, I generally largely only respond with the ones that I feel are relevant, and then just try, try to interpret and tell people why those stats are important and what they mean. The ones that I think uh, maybe not so important. Um, so deciphering all that, and obviously watching the game at the same time. Is um, is the way that I I try and approach it and, and and sort of make sense of all that and try and relay that to the viewer. So in a way, I'm in a way I'm I'm trying to sort of please myself because if if I satisfy myself that I can interpret what's going on or I'm I'm happy with what I've seen or I've you know viewed uh, what happened in the first half and I can now digest and maybe anticipate what's happening in the second half. I'm almost not thinking about the viewers at all if I'm perfectly honest. Um, formulate everything. I formulate everything in my head. Um, if it makes sense to me, I hope it makes sense to them. Yeah. So with my trained eye, and then that's what I'm really, really concerned about. Um, I'm going to go ahead and ask this now because I, I find it to be an interesting topic. You and I had an email exchange leading yeah. up to this conversation about a topic that I know is important to both of us. And mm-hmm. um, it gets into what I guess might be called coded coded racism uh, and, and coded language, which we run into with, with broadcasts around the world, not just in the US, not just in England. Um, and you know, we, we call it the pace and power 
talk here yeah. uh, in the U.S. because it's almost become a bit of a, a cliche now that with black players, uh, you'll hear this, you'll see it in writing. You sent me a, a story from a newspaper recently talking about Sadio Mane. Uh, yeah. He actually literally used pace and power. Um, and, and I'm wondering why we, you think we continue to see this being used to discuss generally black players um, and there doesn't seem to be any change or very little change over time with this. Yeah, it's, um, it's very disappointing, first and foremost. It is what I call lazy broadcasting, lazy journalism, uh, both uh, in print, on radio and TV. I think when I was a player, I didn't pay too much attention to it because you're so focused on what you're doing yourself as an athlete that a lot of what goes outside, you just you class as noise. You're very much within your own world, the people around you, your training partners, you know, the team, et cetera. And, um, yeah, you know, we, we, have a, we have thick skin. We also have thin skin at the same time. All athletes do, whether they say it or whether they believe it or not, I think they do. Um, so some of the most minute things, the most inconsequential things, you know, that may affect one person, don't affect the next person, next person and vice versa. You know, so but we all have our trigger points. But you know, that being said, as a player, largely I, I sort of ignored it. Now I've been broadcasting for about eighteen years. I'm much more aware of it, or have been. Uh, first thing that I'll say, Grant, is I do think racism is about power and control, and any way that any um, group of person or, per, or any personal group of persons can find a way to exert influence over another group of people um, by influencing people from their own. Um, uh, community from you know, people speak speak the same language or whatever. Generally, you know that's the human condition is what I would call it. It's a way to keep your people in a way on top. So if you can find a way to limit the influence, limit the impact, um, control the rise of another group of people, then you know people do. Like I said, that's both prevalent in a white community and a black community. It's not it's not a racism doesn't only exist within Western Europe. You know. Or, People of, of lighter skin that exist all over Africa, all over Asia, all over South America, all over the world, in different ways, of course. Within our sports, um, yeah, it is. It's, I suppose, it's a way to keep um, black black athletes, both female and male, uh, or to impress upon the people from within your community that, well, yes, you know, they may be strong and fast, but they don't have the mental capacity, that uh, intellectual fortitude to be able to compete with us. So, it's a way of keeping themselves. On top, I also feel it's a way, or it's due to um, limited vocabulary with lots of people. If you are not particularly intelligent, then you have a small you have a small amount of words that you use repeatedly over the course of days, weeks, months, or years. If you're broadcasting, um, the journalists I don't think have much of an excuse because most of them are well educated or, or better educated than the average footballer. Let's talk about football, for example. I know it's obviously this is an issue with with other sports as well. So they don't really have the excuse of not being able to um, be more more eloquent with their words, more descriptive, more informative for the public. So for, I think there's a more sinister tone behind some of the comments or some of the articles that you read that they were right or, um, um, or comments that we'll make. With ex-footballers, for example, I do think it's, it's mainly down to ignorance or lack of education. Um, so if you don't have the grasp of the language, you're you're not able to relay your message in in different ways. Basically, you know, when 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 I'm commentating, I I say the same thing over and over again. 
over and over again. Every virtually every game, there are some words I will use pretty much every game. But if you can sort of deceive the public, if you, if you like, a little bit to um, say the same thing in different ways, that's the art I think of a a good broadcaster. That's the art of a good journalist. You know, you could write a thousand articles, but if and eight hundred of them may be pretty much the same. Uh, but if you can find a way to use your knowledge of the language to describe it, what's happening, what you've seen, what you anticipate in different ways, I think, you know, that shows a great skill, like a good coach um, will find different ways to liven, liven a training session. Go, players will get bored after maybe two, three years of hearing the same voice, but a new coach may come in. The same message, just told a different way that enlightens everybody, that invigorates everybody, and people wonder why results all of a sudden will improve. So I think the same thing, um, the way we verbalize what we think is extremely important. Uh, yes, uh, it is. It's, um, I think, you know, some people just can't, uh, can't be more eloquent. Others refuse to be. It's a way to, you know, to, I don't know, for want of a better phrase, keeping certain people down. But it's, it's frustrating. I don't think, you know, we just have to attack it all the time. And I confront people when they say it. I, I, had, I had some person say that to me once upon a time back in a gym. I was, I was in about 10. 12 years ago it's very very rare for me to sort of uh, react sort of in in a, a negative manner like that and he realized what he was saying after i responded within about four or five seconds realized that he'd overstepped the mark so people can be flippant in that regard uh, but i do feel it as like i said it's a combination of, of ignorance and uh, sort of a willful willful attitude by the more educated members of society you know we've seen this in in the U.S., uh, in soccer, in Dallas, and in the NFL with a couple of teams. We've seen when players take the knee uh, before a game and there are boos and whistles coming yeah. from the stands. We've seen this in England recently with even the national team. Yeah. What do you make of, of that? And, 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 and how do you feel right now about some of the actions that players are are taking in in situations like this that maybe they that they wouldn't have taken the knee twenty years ago in a similar situation? Yes, that's right. You know, twenty years ago it would have been highly unlikely that there would have been this kind of movement, this kind of forward momentum with these issues. You know, we're I think we're thankful. Most most right minded me, most right minded minded people are thankful that things are moving on. We hopefully and we hope in a in a progressive manner. There are lots of people who are just plain unhappy that they are being challenged on, on this issue. Lots of members of uh, certain communities who feel as if they've got nothing to answer for. They don't have to make any kind of allowances. Racism is not their issue. They say, I'm not racist. It's not It's not important as far as I'm concerned. Um, they don't understand the bias against members of different communities over, over many, many generations. So for them, it's it's extremely irritable that they even have to talk about this for them to even have to acknowledge that they may have, they may have benefited in many ways. Um, so unless they've been victims of it, of racism, then they have no understanding. So like I said, it just becomes, it all becomes very irritating and um, they find it difficult to even accept that they should ac acknowledge anything for, if you are booing people who are trying to fight for a better society, a more, more equal one. Um, I find that very very disappointing when you see lots of players from different nationalities on the same field. They could have arms around each shoulders, linking arms, taking the knee, as you said, and uh, they just want to get on with the game in a way. You know, they don't want to have to feel as if that there's anything wrong with their life, anything wrong within within the community. Um, so, I can't 
I can't understand what they're thinking really, uh, because I've never been in in a situation. Uh, I think some of them probably would have to suffer some some kind of bias against them to have any kind of uh, understanding of of what other people may be going through. The taking the knee issue is. I understand the message or have understand it have understood it from day one. At some point, of course, I think the the sporting community, uh, the black sporting community largely anyway, will have to take this further. So, uh, you know, the point has been made, but it's about legislation changing things from uh, an, an executive point of view, administrative point of view, more, more black people, more people of smaller minorities, depending on the community that you live in, in positions of influence. Sports people can only do so much. They don't control, you know, they don't have the power, you know, to do more than raise awareness. At some point, uh, you know, work has to be done. I, I know work has been done in England, certainly within the football community. I'm not sure exactly what's happening outside of that. But certainly football is is taking giant strides. But until there's more representation and people actually see visually there's more representation, it'll be, it'll be really difficult, um, certainly from my point of view, and to even believe that things can change as quickly, I think, as most people would like. My next question for you kind of gets into some of the different things we've just been talking about, but in terms of, of African national teams, black African national teams. Um, so I remember during the Women's World Cup in 2019 when the black African teams played, Yeah, you had announcers sort of fall into this coded stuff where they talked about this... Nigeria team, for example, because this was a specific case, was, quote, not tactically organized until white European coach comes in and takes over the team. And, and obviously, there's, that's become a, a real pernicious um, cliche that yeah. we've seen all over the world in, in different places. But... I'm also wondering, you know, your former teammate on the 1994 Nigeria World Cup team, Stephen Keshi, did tremendously well with Nigeria. Why are we still in a situation where there are, we see so many white coaches from Europe going in to, co- to coach African national teams? Like, what, what are the... the the, the forces that are still creating this? I think the root of the problem is um, disorganization, lack of structure, uh, greed within the, or on the African continent largely. There's, Africa has more money probably in terms of natural resources um, than any other continent on the world or in the world. Um, there's, finance is not an issue. Uh, certainly the will is, is not there to actually install the infrastructure to have things from a grassroots level both on the uh, on the playing side and both on the um, on the admin side the commercial side as well to be able to put the building blocks in place in order to develop everything from scratch and to make sure that uh, Nigeria or, or sorry Africa um, can have the opportunity to develop their own players to keep their own players for as long as possible to develop coaches um, if you have strong leagues, if you have good, strong organization, well-funded, well-managed, people who have a desire to be selfless, to make sure you know, that the community generally you know, will benefit more than them, more, more than their pockets, and you, know, you will provide that platform for people to be able to flourish at home. This is not just a sporting environment. This is a, a social, uh, economic environment within Africa. 
largely. Um, of course, the bulk of the best players in the world play in Europe. That's a fact. Uh, but if there's a pathway to be able to develop or allow young black trainers, the ones who, you know, ex-players, for example, like myself, who want to coach, who have taken their badges or who want, want to take their badges, you know, they can they can find a way to affiliate themselves with, with perhaps the clubs that they just finished playing with or ones that they played with before, qualify, then take their skills back back to Europe, unfortunately. I don't think many of them really want to. There's also there's also a question of aspiration as well. I think proportionally speaking, maybe there are fewer black edge black players who uh, want to coach them than white players. And uh, maybe it's a numbers game largely, of course, you know, the population in Western Europe largely, of course, is is Caucasian. Um, whether the opportunities are there as much as they are for their white counterparts, of course, of course is a, a, an issue that we can debate or people have done, you know, for quite a long time. Uh, but first of all, I always feel like you have to get your get your house in order. Make sure you have good training pitches. Make sure you have good, um, good, you know, very good admin, like I said, um, and create that opportunity for, for people for your own inner genes, for example, to want to stay or to come back home and to want to develop. Um, you then you go chasing things because you you don't have the good infrastructure. You can't build a house, you know, from the top. Um, so if you if you could have the you know the best coaches in the world, if Guardiola went to the Gambia or went to Nigeria right now, went to Congo, went to Ivory Coast or South Africa, despite the talent there, it's highly unlikely that he will be successful because all that infrastructure that he needs around him, the good support system, the medical system, the good administration, the football federation, example, they're not there to be able to make football his only job. If you're too concerned about what's happening, whether whether the bus will arrive, whether the kit will arrive, whether the trainer pitches up to scratch, whether the hotel is ready to accommodate 22 players plus 18 staff, for example. All those things are noise outside that you really don't want to be associated with. So I know from experience, we're playing with Nigeria, with the national team, we, we never just thought about football. We never thought about football. Everything else was going on aside. It really was always thinking that Nigeria has been successful in spite of the system, not because of it. And I, I know that's the case with quite a few other of the nation, certainly from from West Africa. So if, if you're not able to put all those things in place, it's very difficult for you to be able to encourage your own coaches to even be one to be interested outside of, of playing themselves. As a result, you spend more money on, not not all the time, mercenary play uh, coaching or coaches from, from Western Europe, but people, of course, who will smell a quick book and won't particularly have the heart of the nation um, or, you know, you know, you know, the... the um, the benefits of the nation in mind. I mean, not every coach that, of course, will coach Nigeria or Ghana or Ivory Coast, for example, has to be Nigerian or Ivorian. Uh, but I think, of course, you will have more feel, a lot more feel, a lot more pride. Um, and generally, uh, chances are there'll be a, a better job done knowing that is for you and, and for your people. In a way, I don't blame the coaches at all, uh, at all who go to Africa. You know, it's a job. You know, it'll be a, a job for me, but of course, there'll be a lot more feeling attached. Um, so yeah, you know, get your get your house in order first, and then you know, who knows? You know, you you may be able to coach your own players or your ex players to be able to come and coach in Europe. So it's twofold, of course. Yeah, you know, some sometimes money can be or lots of money can be detrimental to the way you run your business or run your football association. I certainly think that's the case with Nigeria, and uh, so we. We keep dipping in and out, playing well enough with lots of good players. Sometimes we don't have a great group of players, sometimes a good group of players. But it's not its not the only thing that will make you successful, that's for sure. You mentioned you would like to coach. Uh, you have 
Some good I media. I didn't. No. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. I didn't, I thought... No, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know. I, no. Sorry, I sorry, sorry. Anyway. Yeah. You, you don't have you don't have the desire at this point. I, Grant, I don't need the stress. My <laughs> life's quite easy right now. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Not that um, I've never thought about it, but you know, lots yeah. of the things I spoke about certainly with doing stuff back home in Nigeria certainly have put me off. I mean, I started a soccer academy back uh, 2006, seven. Uh, this show is not long enough for me to delve into detail as to as to the hurdles I had to overcome in order just to put something back into the community. With no sponsorship, my own money, with my own people working with people I trusted, my own mm-hmm. time taking away from what I do to be going back and forth to Nigeria from London, you know, two, three, four times a year, with three, four, five years. The obstacles people will put in your way because they want to make something from you without assisting you at all. So those, you know, it becomes extremely draining to be able to or to work under those circumstances. And uh, it's, you know, at some point you have to decide what's best for me, what's best for me personally, what's going to maintain my sanity. And uh, and doing that at at the time certainly wasn't going to help me. And I've not changed my mind. (laughs) Not yet. I was going to say, you got some nice media gigs. Um, in, in terms of your playing career, for me, the 1994 Nigeria team, and for a lot of other people too, is this really special team. And I'm wondering what yeah. it was like to be on that team with some some guys I already mentioned, Stephen Keshi. Uh, yeah. you, know, you had JJ Okocha was on that team, Rashidi Akini, Daniel Amokachi, a bunch of other guys too. What, what was that experience like with a team that, that went out to Italy in, in, a, in a way I thought you guys were going to beat them? I still think we're going to win that match, you know? Still, uh, whatever, three, four minutes to go before the end of 90 minutes. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, I played over in my mind, you know, many times. And a game that we threw away, really. You know, first time for everything is always special, isn't it? You know, first car you buy, uh, first girl you kiss all that kind of stuff. Uh, first house you buy, first goal you scored. Um, so yeah, you know, first time Nigeria qualifying for the World Cup, long overdue, by the way, as well. 1994, crazy, really. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think there's much argument, really. The best crop of Nigerian players that we've ever had. You know, we had some good ones before. We've had some good or very good ones since groups of players. With that group, I think there was certainly a maturity and hunger about the group, which, you know, those two things are very important. You know, there's very good balance. People who needed to prove themselves, who wanted to prove themselves, some in Europe already, some were about to go to Europe. So you can't have a better mix than that. People who are desperate to do well on the biggest stage of all, first time round. Yes, you know the quality of players that we had. You know we could easily have taken six or seven people out of any team, and the there would have been no drop off in terms of quality. And also that's what that's what helps you to maintain. You know the people who are lucky enough to wear their shirt maintain their level. So yeah, it was. A great group of players um, didn't last long enough, really, or didn't win enough, you know, for that group, you know, just to go, go to Longwell uh, in 94, 98, you know, for, you know, for lots of those guys just winning in 94, AFCON um, in Tunisia. But then obviously political interference, you know, means that you don't go to a couple of nations as well. All those things, you know, they, they were all very disappointing because um, people make decisions based on what suits them, not what is good for the nation or what's or what is not good for people who've maybe you know sweated blood and tears for years in order to get to the level just like USA pulling out of you know the Olympics of 1980 and and then the Eastern Bloc you know sort of returning the favor if you like in in, in 1984 you know those things are very damaging you know 
to uh, to players and to and uh, and to fans as well. Uh, but yeah, you know, certainly in terms of talent, it was it was a good bunch, a good bunch, and lots of those guys went on the course to be successful for many years after. You also played in the early years of the Premier League in the in the early nineties, uh, Norwich, uh, a place where I think you're part of the Hall of Fame. Um, what was that like? The the early years of the Premier League, uh, because that was a little bit before we saw maybe starting in the late nineties the the Premier League become maybe even more internationalized. I remember the Chelsea teams yeah. of the late nineties and, and then after that. But what what was it like playing in the Premier League when it first started in the early nineties? It was great, you know, it was everything was everything was new and new and shiny. Uh more games on the TV than ever before. You know, you know, when I was growing up and even, you know, before, just before I started playing, you know, you could hardly watch football on TV in the UK. Um, two channels would show, BBC and ITV. No one else showed football. You were lucky if, in fact, you know, there, there was a strike, I think, when I was in Nigeria, there was a strike in the UK for about this six-month blackout or something back in the 1985, 86s, maybe the season after. So, plus, I think they were supposed to show some matches then. But, you know, 88, 89, for you to see a league match on TV, maybe like one or two a season, you'd watch one or two FA Cup matches, the FA Cup semi-final, the FA Cup final, England matches. That was it. It would be a few European matches. In total, you might get 20 matches a year live, 20 matches a year. Now we get 20 in one weekend, easily. That's just in the UK in, in the top two divisions. You can get 20 matches one weekend. So to have all this uh, euphoria and excitement, new branding, a little bit more money in the game, a lot more money in the game, actually. Um, yeah, it was it, it was great to feel it in a way, like a, I talked about noise before, you sort of filter it out very quickly because your focus is, also, is always just what happens between those white lines. So, you're sort of aware of what's going on, but you're not really you're not really feeling good a lot. I mean, I see some of the promos now, and I don't even remember them. I don't recognize them. People say, "Oh yeah, that was 1992 or 94 or something," but I don't re- I don't remember them because I wasn't really paying too much attention, you know, you know, to that at all. It all seemed I would see it, but then it would leave my mind all that kind of stuff. So, looking back now, you know, it was, uh, I think in a way it's probably much more exciting for the fans because they were seeing, you know, you know, their heroes, people who they like, people who they've always seen growing up. For the first time, really on TV, almost every week. I think always as a sportsman, you're so involved with what you're doing, and and you do have to sort of let all this stuff just go by you and remain focused on on the job at hand. So that transition, yeah, from um, just regular football, if you like, to this new new sort of new product uh, was was great to be part of, but also sort of missed me by, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. probably only after. I retired in 2002, sort of, okay, this thing's actually quite big, you know? And by then, of course, like you said, by the late 90s, the Premier League, and, you know, sort of really mushroomed and became such a global uh, global phenomenon. Yeah, around about 2000, 99, 2000, it was when it could sort of feel, yeah, you know, this thing is, is going, it's sort of going crazy. Got a couple more questions with Efan Okoku. Really appreciate you taking this much time. Um, how did you go about making the transition after your playing career to go into media? Was that something that you always thought you would do? How did it come about? I had no idea I was going to be involved with the media when I was playing, when I was sort of in the heat of the battle, as it were, so sort of early, mid-90s. No, it's never, never really crossed my mind. Coaching did. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, coaching did, because I've always loved being involved with, with young players. You know, I talk about stuff I did back in Nigeria, back in around 2004, 2008. So that always 
excited me. The broadcasting side just almost happened by accident. Certainly the last year or so before I retired, I was playing up in Sheffield Wednesday and they asked me to, the BBC asked me to commentate or to be an analyst for a few matches for the Africa Cup of Nations 2000. By that time, I stopped playing for Nigeria 2000, yeah, 2000 to 2002. Uh, yeah, so sure, you know, I came down midweek with one or two days off. I did my work. I went back. We're still playing. Then, at the end of the 2002 season, I had well, I had one more year left. Uh, BBC asked me to to cover the World Cup in in Japan and South Korea. I'd never done any co-commentating before ever in my life. I don't, I don't recall doing one game, but the BBC sort of knew me. I'd done a, a few gigs for them over the preceding two years. Uh, literally, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who who worked for the channel then. Called me. We had a quick chat. He said, uh, "Do you fancy going out to the World Cup?" I said, "To do what?" <laughs> He said, somebody's pulled out. Long story short, we'd like to come, you know, you're going to do some work. I said, oh, oh, okay, all right. I never said I'd never done it before. He knew that I'd never done the Cocons before. I said, okay, all right, I'll see you next week. And that was it, really. When I was working for with a very experienced broadcaster, which I thought, you know, would, would be good. You know, someone sort of helped me along the way. And yeah, I was still playing at the time. I went out, I covered about six games in Japan, didn't get to South Korea, which was, I heard, it was a fantastic atmosphere. The, the Japanese people are great, by the way, very extremely hospitable, very, very polite, very correct in everything that they do. But there wasn't quite the fervor of, you know, South Korea. I heard people who, who crossed over went from Japan to South Korea, vice versa. I think I had a much better time in South Korea. We had a, a very good time, I must admit. But, um, you know, there wasn't that kind of, um, that sort of, you know, wild sort of thing going on. Um, Japan's a baseball city. It's, it's a baseball country as well, isn't it? And, um, yeah. and they love other sports, you know, but uh, they don't go crazy about football really but I had a good time anyway I did the games five or six matches um, got back and a couple of months in I was struggling the new season in fact pre-season really and I just sort of retired there and then I thought you know what I was quite good last season last thing I want to do is to be is to be now sort of nowhere near the level that I know that I should be or was uh, so I retired early then you know within about six seven months I was doing a few, few more bits for the BBC so I fell into it by accident really Grant and yeah you know one thing you know follows another if they like you, they ask you back. If they don't, they won't. Um, within a year or so, I was doing quite a bit of work you know, for them. But that was still largely I was doing stuff in the studio, analyzing stuff. And um, it took another two years, two, three years, really, before I started doing lots of, of co-coms work. And we obviously, here in the United States, see a lot of you during major tournaments like this yeah. Euros. What are you doing during the, the, the European League season these days? Primarily the Premier League, English Premier League. So that's my bread and butter, really. But I also cover quite a bit of German football. Not as much as Derek, but <laughs> <laughs> I cover quite a bit of German football. And over the years, I've done a bit of Italian, um, a bit of Portuguese, a bit of Dutch, but just I filled in for people who've been away for different reasons. Uh, but when I first started doing stuff on a, on a very regular basis, I did a lot of the French League, which was huh. fantastic. Because I always thought then, and probably still to a large extent now, it's the best feeder league in the world, certainly in Europe. So many great players we see ended up in Italy, Spain, and in England largely um, have or came through France. So that was that was a real eye opener for me, and a great way in to learn, you know, increase my knowledge about European players, African players, South American players, Asian players, you know, coming and playing in our league. So league out was a real. I really really enjoyed doing that for about four or five years. Unfortunately, um, the company that was producing it for the world feed then then lost the contract. So uh, I've, I've only done a, a little bit in the last four or five years, but I really 
enjoy doing that. Um, so, yeah, but, yeah, like I said, largely English football, uh, but still get to see a lot of what's going on in Germany, a little, little bit in Italy and Spain. Uh, but, yeah, so it's there's a lot of work. You know, you know, there's lots of matches, obviously, with the pandemic over the last nine or, or 12 months of being involved with, with more games. So it's, it's been on the road. It's been quite tough, enjoyable, um, as always, uh, but not quite the same without fans. So, so looking forward to next season when we can get people back in, in the stadium. Then we don't have to make that artificial noise I was talking about again. <laughs> I guess just as, as a last question here is kind of a fun one, which is right now in Connecticut, there are a lot of really interesting soccer people doing work for ESPN. Yeah. Have you had any opportunity to socialize with the other folks? I, I don't know what the, the COVID protocols are, but have you had any dinners with, with any of the other ESPN commentators? Dinners, that's all I've been doing. <laughs> every night, every afternoon. You know, I can't get away from the guys, if I'm being honest. Uh, yeah, it's been, you know, the protocols, the uh, restrictions have not been as strict as they are or have been in the UK over the last four or five months. So that's been nice in a way. Obviously, you know, we've been doing our best to observe and make sure that we, you know, we're not being reckless. You know, we've had our testing the first week I arrived. I arrived on the 7th and, you know, we were tested every day for five or six days. Um, and then unless, you know, there's any kind of issue with, within the camp, I don't think we'll be doing any more testing. So, yeah, you know, we've been socializing a bit. Um, we've been out for dinner, some great restaurants here. You know, I've come, actually, I've, I'm amazed about the, uh, the number of restaurants in, in West Hartford. So it seems like every time you turn, there's another restaurant next to you across the road, diagonally opposite, etc. So some good food, you know, some good, you know, we've had some good evenings out. Uh, but it has been exclusively with the crew, you know, mm-hmm. the guys, the staff, obviously, the, you know, the, you know, the uh, ex-players. And so they've been working, you know, with myself. Uh, but, you know, we sort of remain with, within our bubble, but we've been able to go out, you know, freely. Played golf for the first time yesterday, which was nice. nice. Uh, is it Bloomington or something? Or Bloomfield? Which is about yeah. 20. Yeah, 20 minutes or so away. So that was nice. One of the guys from, from the crew, you know, he took us down. He's a member. So, yeah, we've, but I know the gig, you know. I know the gig when I come. The tournament football, tournament work is hard, first two weeks especially. And after that, it gets a, it gets a bit easy, sort of relax a little bit. But it's strange because every time I've worked a big gig for, uh, for, for ESPN, I've looked at the schedule before and I've seen three games in three days. Oh, here we go, a flight. And then, you know, a few hours down there, another flight, then another game, a day off. Before you look at the first 10 days, you think, man, this is tough. With that. But then, then you get too many days off and you miss the football, you know, yeah. <laughs> because you get bored, because you know you really can't do anything much in a day and a half or two days. You can't really relax. You can't travel, go to Boston or go anywhere or when I've been on the road in Brazil or South Africa. So you then, you've, you know, you've been having your fix if you don't get it every day and there's something wrong. So in a way, I'm looking forward to the round 16 and a few days after the quarter final and beyond, but also thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So it's, uh, but yeah, you know, that's, I mean, that's the gig, like I said. And yeah, you know, looking forward to some real action on the weekend once again. I think we had the best day of the tournament on Wednesday with uh, Germany, Hungary and Portugal, France. I think, you know, some fantastic football, great goals. And with most of the big boys left in, yeah, it's, it's going to be a fun weekend um, uh, next week or so. Well, really looking forward to the round of 16 games and beyond and hearing you broadcast those. And I realize these off days, like today, Friday, are prized. So thank you so much for taking some time out of your off day to speak to me. Uh, you interrupted my yoga session, by the way. I was, only able to, <laughs> I was only able to do 45 minutes as opposed to 90. So, yeah, 
I've got catch up this evening. <laughs> I, I apologize. That that actually yeah. sounds quite nice. I could use something like that myself. But uh, F. Anakoku, uh, working for ESPN during the Euros. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Efan Okoku as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.